Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1 with All Care Pharmacy. Discover a healthcare team that's always here for you at All Care Pharmacy, Ireland's largest community pharmacy network. Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1. So the HSE has a new CEO as of this week. Bernard Gloucester's appointment to the role was announced last December and he officially took up the new post on Monday and he joins me now in the studio. You're very welcome, Bernard. Thanks, it's Claire. good to have Thanks you here. So you come to the HSE from Tusla, the yes. State Child and Family Agency. You were CEO there. Where in the name of God are you going to start with this job? Well, firstly, can I can I just say it is an enormous privilege to have been appointed by the board of the HC to this job and to have the endorsement of the minister and government. It's, it's, I see it as a huge opportunity. Others have described to me the scale of the challenge. Yeah. And there is no doubt there's scale to that challenge, but I think there is huge opportunity. I, I guess I come from it having been out of it for three and a half years, having been in an organisation that required serious change, having applied myself to that. And I think we had some successes, but there's always more to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but Prior to that, I spent 30 years working in the health service right from the front line to senior management level. So I do know it intimately. I do yeah. know it very well. And, and you wonder, you know, looking at this from an outsider point of view, is that an advantage or an, an, a, a disadvantage? You know, you're you're an inside man. You've worked in mm. the health service uh, for most of your life. Does this job not require a disruptor who just won't mm. accept that the health service in Ireland can't change? Yeah, so I think as somebody uh, described me recently, I'm the perfect inside-outsider. Uh, I have been outside of the system for three and a half years. That does give you a chance to look at it through a different lens. Uh, I think it would be fair to say any reasonable assessment of the way I approached the CEO job in Tusla was very much at that disruptor level uh, and and making change much more simple and much more straightforward and not not accepting that everything has to be a multiple process and mm-hmm. has to be months and years of delays and so I, th- I, th- I think there's a lot of things in the health service So you, you don't accept that change can't happen are you going in there to run the HSE or to change the HSE? Both, and it requires both. Um, Claire, I, I could, I suppose, adopt the position that because I'm the CEO of an organisation with a budget of about €23 billion Euro and 140,000 staff, that I would stay very much in that strategy space. The reality is that today the health service requires a very hands-on approach uh, right from the top of the organisation out to where the front line is delivered. I met every senior manager in the health service from across the country yesterday uh, and I've made it very clear to people, people are working hard, I know people are tired, we're post-Covid and so on, but I have made it very clear there are certain things I just would not accept as being reasonable and there are things that we can improve and improve in like the short what? term. What did you tell them yesterday wasn't acceptable? So, for example, we talk about access to healthcare and, and the Minister's quite clear in his two priorities about access to healthcare and urgent care and you have the waiting list plan published today and so on. Um, but, but, but if I look at, for example, one of the things that's talked about in acute hospitals from time to time whenever there's a pressure, it's now called delayed transfer of care. It used to be called delayed discharges, which I suppose became a little bit of a pejorative term about older people particularly. Uh, but I just don't accept uh, that right now today the level of delayed transfer of care that we would have in our hospital system mm-hmm. is, the, is necessary. But there's no, if there's nowhere for them to go, what do you do? 
but but sometimes there is somewhere for them to go more quickly than we're getting them there. So it's about the process of how we get there. So when I was talking to senior managers yesterday, I was talking about the fact that very often the debate in healthcare is about capacity and demand, capacity and demand. We have to introduce a third variable to that if we're going to look at ourselves and look at ourselves critically, and that's process. Mm-hmm. And the process by which we make decisions and by which we enable people to make decisions. We'll go through some of those um, issues sure. that you're, you're facing in detail, but just looking at the frontline staff, you know, when we hear from the frontline staff, members of the public hear from them what it's like working in hospitals or healthcare facilities and just how difficult it is, would you blame them for taking a job overseas, particularly when they're early in their career? I, I, I fully accept that frontline staff have a varied and very mixed experience. I also do know that there are a lot of frontline staff who find their work very rewarding. They're exceptionally committed to it. And, and there are more experienced health professionals who know that overseas isn't always uh, uh, as, as easy as sometimes it might be portrayed. If you look at what the NHS has gone through uh, in the last 12 months, well, the experience would be as pressured an environment. That's not younger, where they're going, really, people, is it? It's Australia younger Canada. Do- younger doctors, nurses going to Australia. People have always gone to Australia. I I, I don't think it's just the conditions of working here that that take Mm -hmm. people travelling. We have a very mobile global workforce now uh, and I think we have to accept that. But yes, there is no doubt that we can make the experience of working here a lot better. And I think we can make that better for for people by reducing some of the simple problems. And there are problems that are sometimes simple and we simple and we we tend to present the solution to them as being more complex than it's so necessary. So what do you think the first simple thing is that you can do? So I think the first simple thing we can do is is to bring the people who are in the regions who are out in the local areas closer to the point of decision making. So at the moment, my view of the HSE is there are a lot of very good, talented people working there, including uh, at senior management level. But the HSE is a very centralised, very top heavy organisation at the centre. It's very difficult for people who are working outside in the system, running hospitals, running community services, to be able to make decisions and to be able to make timely decisions. And that's what Slauncher Care is all about, isn't it? Decentralising power. Exactly. Well, you know, Professor Sarah Burke said at Mm. a a committee there recently that people who have power in order for Slauncher Care to work are going to have to relinquish that power. Yeah, and that's that's exactly the conversation I've had yesterday. So rather than wait for the establishment of of regional health areas, which is something we're committed to, and I'm very committed to, but rather than wait for that, um, as 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 of yesterday, essentially, but 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 from the end of this month. There are six hospital group chief executives out there, plus the children's hospital group. There are nine chief officers in community healthcare. I'm bringing the 15 of those right into the decision-making process that normally happened at the centre mm-hmm. and normally happened without them being at the table. And they're coming right into that process. Now, with that, with that comes a certain amount of authority that, that gets devolved to them, but also with that comes a certain amount of accountability for using that authority appropriately. We do have to break down the multiple processes we have that prevent timely implementation. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you touched on waiting lists there. I know the Minister for Health was speaking about that on Morning Ireland this morning. Lots of people see those numbers, over 800,000 who are waiting, mm-hmm. and they are scared. And so they take out private health insurance. Do you have private health insurance? I do. I do, yeah. and It's it's a pretty it's, sad indictment of the health it's, service it's, when the CEO of the HSE has private health insurance. Sure, I, I, I have private health insurance and it's, it's, a, it's a feature of, of a large percentage of the Irish population yeah. since the introduction of the VHI Act many years before I was born. How do born. you feel about that? Well, how, do, how I feel about it is... How do you feel about the fact that so many people feel they need to have private health insurance, including yourself? Hmm. 
So how how I feel about it is I think it's reflective of the healthcare system that has developed in this country over decades. It's a reality of what we have now. I, I think the core principles of slanted care in terms of addressing that, and we've seen things today like the Minister talking about the new consultant contract and so on. But 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 I think some of the core principles of slanted care, if we can bring the service to a place we can all have confidence in, then it becomes a very different uh, option for people. Uh, when people talk about waiting lists, Claire, I guess we, we tend to talk all the time about the number on the waiting list. And, and actually the critical issue of a waiting list in healthcare is the length of time people are on it. So last year, you know, the, the, the view that there were 800,000 on a list last year, 800,000 on a mm-hmm. list this year. Last year, 1.56 million people were taken off waiting lists. 1.53 million people came onto waiting lists. So that that's, you know, a net reduction of probably 30,000, 40,000, which, which, you know, sometimes when we talk about the 800,000, we, we, we may form the view that there's nothing happening. There is, but, but certainly there's an awful lot more we can do. The 443 million that has been committed to this year for waiting list initiatives, I, I certainly intend to take a, a very significant hands-on personal ownership of our performance against that. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's important, I think, that as as a public service organisation, that we ultimately face back to the patients. To you know, I talked yesterday about one individual patient. We have to we have to go back to that one individual patient that represents 5.1 million people, and we have to account to them for doing the best we can do with what we have. And I don't think yet we're doing the best we can do. That with money that you have for addressing waiting lists, mm-hmm. how will that be spent? Because a criticism in the past has been that it's spent on private care, so it doesn't fix the problem. It's firefighting. Yeah, so so any response to waiting lists has to be medium to long term in terms of changing the system, but it has to be short term to, to, to get to the people who need the service right now today. Some of that is a mix of private care and using buying private system and buying private capacity that's available today. I, I'm not going to apologise to anybody for buying capacity that's available today if it helps them to get mm-hmm. from being 18 months on a waiting list to 12 months on a waiting list to hopefully nine months on a waiting list. It's it's important first and foremost if that capacity exists in whatever Except form. Except if you do that. Utilize it. If you continue to do that, you'll be doing it again next year and the year after and the year after. So, so I, 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 it's a multi-annual approach to waiting lists there. You're never, you're never going to change the dynamics. It's like the piece you asked me about having private health insurance myself. Until we get to change the whole system, which, which requires a series of steps and a series of progressions. You know, if it, if it, if it was that easy to fix this year, I, I dare say it would have been long before my time. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is something that's going to take a number of years to, to step towards. But I do think there are significant opportunities to make it better and make it better for people today. The new consultant contract that's uh, due to start today, isn't it? Again, the Minister addressed this this morning. Extended working hours uh, across the board now. I know in some hospitals those extended working hours are already in place, but there'll be a standardised system now, we know. The IMO say 55% of current contract holders won't switch to the new contract. Non-consultant hospital doctors, that's 65%. The Irish Hospital Consultants Association say 73% of people they asked said they were unlikely to take up the new contract. Mm-hmm. It's not a great start, is it? It's it's a very challenging position, it, and if you take it from that perspective. But I have to say, I I have to take those numbers as being indicative service at the moment, because I think when these contracts come into play, it means a very different thing. Mm-hmm. So let me just give you uh, one example. When t- people talk about the several hundred consultant posts that are vacant and almost interminably um, vacant, um, and they can't fill them. 
the narrative in, in, in both political and media and public circles for the last 10 years has been that the introduction of a change salary system after the financial crash meant yes. you had two different approaches to consultants. Yeah, so the post-2012 consultants. And that became the narrative why we couldn't recruit people. This contract takes people into a position uh, of moving from a baseline salary of 250,000, potentially up to 300,000. Uh, it takes a public benefit of the opportunity of a wider spread of rostered hours across the system and we how often do we hear uh, about the need for senior decision making and so on. So I, I think we're going to have to wait and see uh, will the take up be what those surveys actually say. But you're not uh, going to do any more talking about this. Well, there comes a point in every negotiation where the negotiation has to stop and we have to say we can't get any further. Um, from what I understand, and I wasn't there at the time, at the start of the negotiations, which took over 18 months at the start of them, uh, the proposal was at a very, very different place to where it is now. Mm -hmm. it, it, nobody in a negotiation comes out of it with everything they want, including government as well as the medical organisations. But the reality is, by any standard, it is it is a very attractive position to what was heretofore. The Minister uh, seems very annoyed at the Irish Hospital Consultants Association in particular, the Department of Health too, accusing them of misrepresenting what the contract is to their members. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that position? I only heard the Minister with that comment this morning and so you'll appreciate I'm, I'm two days in the job. Uh -huh. uh, I'm talking to the Minister later on this morning as it happens. What, what I would say to you is this, I, I think the Minister is quite right to articulate his frustration about how a very, very attractive contract by any standards from what was previously in place uh, might be represented uh, and might be painted uh, to the people who potentially could take it up. OK, um, staff issues and recruitment mm. issues. Again, we've, we've touched on this, but just to go more in depth into it, uh, health staff say in general terms they're burned out after the pandemic. Many are leaving the profession. They're emigrating to jobs abroad, citing stress in many cases, bad conditions, bad pay as the reasons why mm. they're going. What's been done to address that? So a lot of work has been done over the last uh, 24 months on trying to shorten recruitment timelines, trying to do more anticipatory recruitment. The reality is when we say we haven't got enough of staff, if you go from December at the end of 2021, 132,000 people working in the Irish Health Service, both in the HSE and the Section 38 system, the target for the end of this year is 142,000. From 2019, prior to the pandemic, which is probably the best measure, uh, you're talking about somewhere in the region of 15,500 extra people um, uh, being in the system, net in the system. You also have to recruit for all the levers and so on. So I think the next focus has to be continuing to shorten the recruitment timeline, but the focus has to be on two strands. One is the resourcing. In other words, how do we generate more supply of nurses, allied health professionals and doctors and GPs? You had a very good segment uh, on the future of GP practice in this programme two mm -hmm. weeks ago. Um, and, and so how do we generate more supply right back at the college end? Uh, and then how do we as an employer step up to the mark about what you, 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 you said to me at the start. On the stress of the and the burnout. On the stress, on the burnout, on employee yep. wellbeing, uh, on retention. Uh, and my, my, my aim uh, for the current year is obviously there's a plan in place, there's a workforce plan in place, there's a recruitment plan in place, there's a target in place. So we will run that through for this year, but my aim is that for this year in 2023, uh, we'll develop an entire people strategy that goes from end to end. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm talking about when the kids start thinking about the CEO on school, right through to when they come and work. But you have to spend a lot of money on recruitment overseas, don't you? <clears throat> you do. You have to spend a lot of money on agency staffing. You have to spend a lot of money on recruitment, on recruitment process, on recruitment agencies and so on. 
Uh, and the nature of the demand during the pandemic to get people was such that that drove a lot of those additional pieces uh, and recruitment does cost money. You'd wonder why people would want to go into a hospital when the INMO says that they're recording 10 assaults a day in Irish hospitals on their staff. Yeah, yeah. the the the, 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 the nature, particularly you and I have spoken before in the context of my, my work with Tusla. One, one of the things to be very categorically clear about is whatever people might say is the cause of behaviour or not, um, for any person out there who's frustrated by their experience of the health service in any way, I have no difficulty with that being articulated. I have no difficulty with complaint. Uh, I have no difficulty with, with, with people, you know, uh, publicly articulating their complaint. Mm-hmm. I draw the line. I draw the line at anyone thinking for one minute that it's OK to assault, abuse, intimidate or threaten a public servant of any description, be it a guard or a health professional, but in my case, uh, health service staff. I, I just won't accept that. If I accept it for myself, I'd accept it for the 140,000 people what, working for What me. does not accepting it mean? Okay, well, how do you protect your staff? Well, not accepting it means we're going, to, we're going to have to increase the level of monitoring of that behaviour and the level of enforcement and responsiveness to us. Um, ultim- ultimately, it, we rely very often at times on the relationship with the Gardaí in a very flared up situation and, and the Gardaí are very good uh, in that context. So uh, are you uh, planning uh, to spend more on security at hospitals? We, we may have to do that if, if if the incidents continue in the fashion they do. We already do spend a lot of money on security in hospitals. Uh, it's not always security that arises, however, because hospitals is not the only place where this issue arises. We have loan workers out in the community. We yes. have people working in mental health facilities and disability facilities and so on. So we have to think about it in a much broader sense. But I would want to say this equally. The majority of people we encounter and deal with are good, decent people who would never in a million years think about abusing or assaulting a healthcare worker. And, and we, we have to stay with that majority uh, and we have to stay loyal to that majority and we have to support our staff who, who find the minority mm. difficult. The IT system, that's a big challenge for you as well. I mean, people yeah. might know this, but it has been said by your organisation that it's going to take 20 years to get to an online e-health mm-hmm. system. Do you accept that timeline? No. no so, I don't. so how are you going to change that? Well, so so the, there's, there's, there's a couple of things. Um, uh, this year... Um, just on the capital side of IT, so in other words, for developing uh, rather than the running cost side, uh, this year uh, the minister has given a capital allocation in the order of 140 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's broken down into three categories of expenditure. I won't bore people to death with it, but basically one is about the foundation system. And you saw that in the cyber attack, the HSC still had nine domains, nine old systems, all very vulnerable. Sitting to duck. Yeah. Well, we have to create one single enterprise-wide system. Um, we're about 25% of the way through that. I'm not really happy that 25% is 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 where we could be. I think we can we can get to more. Uh, and I've mandated that since yesterday. We need to move on with that. Where we really need to go to with ICT. Uh, once we have that enterprise system, is all of the digital systems that would enable us to change healthcare and change healthcare in the future. So like uh, monitoring at home, monitoring of people with chronic disease at yes. home, using telemedicine uh, and using all those other supports, so, which which in the absence of people are presenting with flare-ups at mm-hmm. emergency departments. So in your ambition then, 20 years goes to what? Five? Three? Well, in terms of e-health overall, the Department of Health and ourselves are going to finalise a revised e-health strategy by this summer. 
I, I think that would set out a better prediction of timeline. Okay. But what I would certainly say is in terms of making the current system safe and enterprise-wide, I'd be very disappointed if I don't get close to that by the end okay. of 2024. Just very briefly and finally, I want to ask you about this RT Investigates report highlighting a lack of regulation of private psychologists in Ireland and also this one psychologist who used bogus qualifications to get a job with the HSE, carried out diagnostic assessments in the HSE. What do you say to parents who are already in a very difficult situation and now feel that this field is unregulated and they could be preyed on by people like this? So I, I, th I think there's a couple of things in that. Firstly, the regulation of that particular profession, psychology, uh, that's not actually a function of the HSE, that's a function of the regulator. And I don't I don't wish to disown the problem in that sense. Mm -hmm. it, it is on our watch. But you do employ psychology. It is on our watch that who we employ and who we procure should be properly qualified. When we outsource because we don't have enough in the standard of recruitment of psychologists and the vetting of them when they're employed directly by the HSE is a very high standard. But when we outsource any type of service or indeed when parents themselves out of frustration go, uh, they are vulnerable to people. You saw Barry O'Kelly was able to put the plate outside the door, call yeah. himself a psychologist and, and could, could buy a degree online. Um, I, I think fundamentally we have to start from a place uh, of saying that the people who do that they are the people who are really causing the serious problem and vulnerability for people. But when they uh, get a job with the HSE, they're your problem. When they get a job with the HSE, that's our problem. And that's certainly I want I want to look at closer to see is there anything we can do to enhance the safeguards in that system. It, the bigger picture, Claire, is there are a lot of parents out there today with children who require varying levels of intervention and assessment. Um, and it is something I had a very long conversation with senior managers about yesterday. It's something uh, that the HSE as an organisation at this point in time cannot be proud of. Uh, and that's something I certainly intend to focus on very significantly. Okay. Bernard Gloucester, thank you very much uh, Thanks, for coming Claire. into the studio and the best of luck to you thank in you. your time as Chief Executive of the HSE. We'll take a break. Email today's CB at rte.ie.